HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at the Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I will try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And I have a very special guest today. If sake was a religion, he was a pope for non-Japanese sake professionals. So here we have John Gontner, who is a sake expert, and he teaches sake uh, in Japan and here in the U.S. So, hello, John. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Akiko. Happy to be here. Okay, so um, you're from Ohio and studied uh, electronic engineering at college. So how did you get into the world of sake? It's a very uh, <laughs> uh, big disconnect, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll give you the short version of a long story. Uh, so I did study electrical engineering. I did work as an engineer in the United States, and I had never left the United States. Uh, so I wanted to do some kind of adventure, so I went to Japan on a whim uh, after a series of coincidences mm. to participate in what was called the JET program. Okay. So I went to teach English. Right, it's a Japanese government initiative that brings college graduates to Japan as a language teacher. Yes, exactly, right. exactly. It's a great program. Um, I did that for two years. I was going to go home back to the United States, but then someone that I knew, uh, the president of a small company, asked me to work for his company because I was an engineer and he needed an engineer that spoke both languages. Mm. So I joined that company for a couple of years. And in the meantime, I got very heavily into sake. <laughs> but I never thought I would make it a career or anything like that. I just mm. really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed tasting it and drinking it and learning about it. Mm. I really, it was a very pure and deep interest. Right. But I never thought I would make it my job. But did you have any like, eureka moment of sake? I guess I did, yeah. Uh, I was still teaching in high schools and a teacher, a Japanese teacher, who was, I don't know, probably about his late 50s at the time, invited me over to his house on New Year's Day 1989. 
And I didn't ask for <laughs> sake or anything like that, but apparently he himself was very much into sake. So after dinner, he came out with five big bottles <laughs> and a little basket of uh, ochoco, of glasses. Mm. And he says, uh, let's drink some sake. I'm like, okay, we can do that. Um, and that was the first time I ever had sake that wasn't hot. Uh, it was the first time I ever had premium sake. Right. And it was the first time I was ever to, to uh, able to compare mm. various sake. And yeah, my life changed on that day. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, that was a time when there is no good, like, high-quality uh, sake was not here in this country. Mostly it's, like, uh, heated Low-quality sake. I'd agree. Back in 1989, there was probably close to zero premium sake in the United States at that mm, time. Okay. And then, uh, you know, you became uh, what people call a sake evangelist. So how, like, you know, you can't suddenly become an expert, right? So what happened? Well, again, it's, it's a long <laughs> story and series of coincidences. But as I mentioned, I got into sake back in about 89. And I, it was just really just a pure interest. And I really never planned on staying in Japan a long time. Uh, but the company that I joined, uh, the president was a good guy. So I promised myself I would fulfill my three-year contract. Mm. And in the meantime, I just got more and more into sake. And I was learning more and more about it. Mm. And you mean I, reading? And yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to learn to read Japanese was so I could learn more about sake. Uh. But also, I would go to pubs mm-hmm. uh, and, visit, uh, and visit breweries and things like that. And just ask a lot of questions and take notes. And and again, it was just a pure interest. But I was absorbing everything I could through reading, through speaking, through visiting places, through talking to people at sake pubs. And uh, I I learned more and more as time went on. But again, I never planned to make this my job. (laughs) And then in 1994, I I was with someone, an American guy who worked for the newspaper, the Japan Times. Mm. And we started talking about sake. And when I got all passionate and into it. Okay. Said, and the Japan Times it. is uh, the most widely read English language newspaper in the whole country. It is. Japan, it right? is. Yes. It right. is. Yes, it is. Uh, and uh, this guy said, you should write a piece for us. I'm like, I could probably do that. Uh, <laughs> so I wrote this big 5,000 word piece for the Japan Times. And then they came back and they said, would you write a column for us? A twice monthly column on sake. <laughs> I said, I could probably do that. So I started doing that. And then someone saw the column, a publisher, and they approached me to write a book about sake. Wow. And so it all kind of came to me rather than me going out and actively seeking it. Uh, and one thing led to another. And if you're going to be writing about it publicly, you can't make stuff up and you can't repeat yourself. So you better learn more. Mm. So I got more and more involved in the industry, which got me involved with brewers, which eventually led to consulting and export. And at one point in time, I said, look, what's really going to slow down the expansion of sake throughout the world is if people that sell it don't understand it. Mm. In other words, if we want it to really grow, those that are on the street selling it have to understand it. And that's when I started to put together seminars and educational programs, mostly for the alcoholic beverage distribution trade. Okay. Right. And I don't think there's anybody else who was English speaker and then who's so passionate about sake at that time. So you're really a pioneer. At that time, yeah, there wasn't. There's lots of people these days. But at that time, I was probably the only one that was crazy enough to (laughs) get involved in this. And then in 2004, you wrote a weekly column. Uh, sake in Japanese now uh, for the Yomiwe Shimbun, which is Japan's and the world's most widely distributed newspaper. Yeah, yeah. So what did you write for the Japanese audience? Because, you know, it's kind of like a counterintuitive, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you just hear that I wrote for a Japanese newspaper about sake, yes. But I was really approaching it from a, a non-Japanese person's point of view. Okay. Uh, and, and that was interesting to them, I think. Mm, it's uh, more objective. You never think of this question, and you ask the questions and answer. So. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Right. 
Okay, and then to, in 2003, uh, at the same time, you started an educational program called Sake Professional Course. Yes, I did, yeah. And so, I just finished a three-day version of that last night. Okay, wow. So the first, uh, what is it and what kind of uh, curriculum do you offer? Well, as I mentioned, it's, uh, it's a course that's geared for professionals. In other words, people that have to sell it, be it at a retail store or at a restaurant or uh, if they're working for an importer or distributor. Mm. Uh, so it's geared towards professionals. It's also designed to be easy to absorb for those that understand wine and other alcoholic beverages. Okay. So uh, the motto that I use for the course is that no sake stone remains left unturned. So it's a very, very thorough course mm. uh, from beginning to end. We talk about grades, we talk about terminology, we talk about production in, in, in great detail. Mm. I talk about history, culture, the state of the industry today. Uh, and we also taste a lot of sake over the two and a half days. Mm, it's almost like, uh, you know, equivalent of wine, like uh, Sommelier Association or the VSAT, that kind of serious program. Oh, it's definitely a serious right. program. Okay. <laughs> it's much more serious than the average drinker needs, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> right. And uh, how many people have attended your program so far? Actually, over 1,300 people have done it. Oh, wow. Uh, I've done it, I believe, about 34 times, we think, uh, over 13 years. Wow. Uh, and the very first course, three people took it in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and it slowly grew. Uh, mm. And now it's 40 to 60 people each time. But over 1,300 people have taken the course. Because mm. I actually, wh whoever I met as a sake professional in this country, they were taught by you. Is Every that right? single yes. <laughs> so you're doing something very relevant. <laughs> and what's the, you just said uh, you had uh, uh, the course uh, last week? Uh, yeah, it would end it. It's a three day course. So Monday, Tuesday, and it wrapped up last night. Okay. Wow. A lot of uh, celebration. It's like you're drinking last night. Uh, well, yeah. wrapping it up, yeah. People finally got to drink it and not have to spit it. And that okay. included myself. So. <laughs> right. So, uh, how many people and uh, what kind of people attended the course? Uh, as usual, it was about 80% people in the industry. Mm -hmm. And retailers and restaurateurs in this particular course. Uh, comprised the majority of the people attending. Okay. There were some importers, there were some distributors, and about 20% of the people were just consumers. Mm. Amongst them, some of them are thinking of starting a sake business in some way, shape, or form, and some of them are just sake maniacs. Okay. <laughs> right. And, uh, well, what do you think, uh, what's the biggest challenge for non-Japanese people in learning sake? Interestingly, I don't think it's the language, because you can learn that if you put your mind to it. Just make flashcards. You can learn the terminology. There is a lot of terminology related to sake, but you can learn that for sure. To me, I think it's the vagueness of sake. In other mm. words, for any question you have about sake, it's not easy to give a straight answer. Mm. Uh, of course, there's rules and laws that define the grades of sake, but in terms of why they might do something or the philosophy of a particular brewer mm. or in the industry it goes this way or they do things that way, there's always exceptions and there's always vagueness. Uh, I think... With other things, other beverages, there's always, there's usually a lot more straight answers. Mm. With sake, there's a lot fewer straight answers. Okay, because it's based on tradition and the regional specific environment. So they, everybody has different way to brew sake, maybe? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if I can throw a Japanese term in here, sakaya banyu. In mm. other words, there's 10,000 ways to brew sake, <laughs> which means there's really, there's a gazillion ways to brew sake, which mm. really means everybody's doing the same thing, but they're doing it their own way. Okay. Right. And, uh, well, maybe you can just uh, tell us what's been happening in the sake industry in the last few decades. In the last few decades? <laughs> uh, sake has actually been on the decline since the mid-70s mm -hmm. uh, overall. 
But as you look at a more narrow range, let's say the past 10 years, premium sake is certainly becoming much more popular. Mm-hmm. However, and this is interesting to me, uh, inexpensive sake, which can be very enjoyable, comprises 75% of the market, and that's contracting, even though premium sake is expanding at a few percent a year. So if you look at the overall market, even though premium sake is increasing, mm-hmm. because the majority of the market's dropping in consumption, the whole thing is contracting. Mm-hmm. However, over the past year or two, sake in Japan is enjoying a huge boom, and it's great. And I really see things changing a lot. And I think we finally found critical mass in the popularity of sake. So I really do think everything's going to continue to get better from now on in the industry. Uh, Another big aspect of that, I think, is there's a huge changing of the guard. In other words, uh, generation change. Mm. So, for example, when I got involved in the sake world in 1994, when I would get together with brewers for work, I was always the youngest in the group. Now I'm always the oldest in the group. Wow. Admittedly, I put on 20 years in the last 20 years. Mm. <laughs> but still, it really does seem like, seem like a lot of breweries across Japan have handed off the uh, company to the next generation. So there's mm. a lot of young brewers there, and they're thinking differently. Okay. Um, I see a lot of innovation in the sake world that really doesn't mess with the basic nature of the product. So in other words... They're, they're marketing with labeling better, or they're, they're making really good sake, but they'll do little things like put it directly from the tank into the bottle, or they'll do it with, uh, they'll have various tanks, and usually they'll blend the tanks, but instead of doing that, they'll have every tank be unique. Mm. So every bottle's going to be a little bit different. Right. So that it's still the same sake, and the nature of the sake is the same, but they're doing fresh marketing mm. thinking and things like that. Interesting. Uh, a lot of tastings these days. Groups okay. of younger brewers, not just younger brewers, but brewers in general are getting together to have tasting for young people, tasting for old people, tasting for women only, tastings for uh, of, of pre- prefectures only. So there's mm. really a lot of activity in the sake world in Japan. Yeah, because I heard that the decline of sake popularity was, you know, the generation change and the older people used to drink, like, you know, dads and granddads. And then people stopped drinking high alcohol beverage, you know, that all the kind of thing. And then the image right. is kind of totally right. transformed. Right. Yeah. Until very recently, sake's only problem was an image problem. And the young people thought that's what the old people drink. And it's mm. not appealing at all. The image isn't sexy at all. Okay. Uh, but recently, and again, over the past couple of years, uh, even one year, I would say, it's really changed. Mm. And sake is very, very appealing. It's really cool. Uh, a lot of people are into it, uh, not just the way it tastes and smells, but because of the craft uh, philosophy and, and uh, creativity that's behind it and in it. Right. So it's been there, but uh, maybe marketers change it or the sake industry started to improve uh, their marketing skills? Uh, I think it's the latter. I think the brewers themselves started to realize that the old way of marketing things wasn't going to get any better. Mm. And so mostly the younger people started to market in different ways. Okay. Yeah, I know a couple of uh, people who, who live in the family of sake making and some of them, you worked in corporations, they have a, you know, mindset of selling like other beverages in this country so that's that's great yeah it is it's going in a good direction it is and what about uh, the american market the american market too has grown on the average of 10 percent a year for the past 15 years or so Mm. so it's very healthy and it's very steady right of course there's years where it doesn't grow as much as other years you might have a a minus year you might have might have a plus 23 percent but on the average it's about 10 percent a year okay and uh, the data is not latest, but I heard in 2012, the top export destinations, um, 
the top one is the U.S. and 28% of total sake export. Yeah, that's just about right. Yeah, 25, yeah, between 25 and 35% is coming to the U.S. And it is the largest importer of Japanese sake. Right. So that's great. All those good news for Japanese sake industry. <laughs> yeah, things are looking bright for a little while anyway. Right. After because, many years of not looking so bright. Yeah, and I heard after World War II, there, only about, oh, there are 4,000 uh, breweries. And as of 2011, I heard it's only about 1,600. So. Uh, it's actually less than that. Oh, wow. When I got to Japan in 1988, there were 2,500. Right now, there's about 1,200 that are actively brewing. Wow. If you look at other statistics, they'll say 1,500 or 1,600, and that's how many have licenses. Mm. But a lot of them aren't brewing anymore. Oh, like so dormant. Ones, yeah, they're dormant, yeah. So a lot of them that are, act, uh, the number that are actively brewing are about 1,200 or so. Mm. Are they increasing the younger generation started to join, or...? You're like young farmers in the States, that kind of thing. Not really. It's, it's very difficult to get a license to brew mm. uh, sake in Japan if you don't already have it. Oh, okay. So there's only been like two or three <laughs> brewing companies that have gotten licenses in the past 10 years. Wow. Uh, the government is reticent to provide licenses to the industry that's contracting mm. uh, when it's already tough to compete. Right. Uh, which I understand that. So what's happening, though, is you're getting smaller breweries that were just maybe making inexpensive sake or cheap sake... And very often, uh, the younger generation will say, well, let's do something different. Let's make ginjo. Let's market this. Mm -hmm. And so you hear of breweries that you never heard of before mm -hmm. that were always there. They just weren't actively making premium sake or trying to market it. Okay. Right. Um, I heard uh, some, uh, like, Nambubijin, you know, uh, they have American apprentice from Arkansas. Right, and, right, And, right. you know, the, the doors started to be open, I think, and... I don't know, maybe uh, like Simo, Americans and Japanese people can support those uh, old breweries. Uh, yeah, there's probably about mm, three or four non-Japanese people brewing sake in Japan right now. Mm. Uh, and they have different objectives. A lot of them want to come home and, and start their own breweries. A lot of them uh, just want to stay there and do... Well, not a lot of them. There's only four or so, but mm. would like to stay in Japan and continue to brew. Uh and, yeah, I think it's great. I think it's great. I think it's challenging for someone to go into a Japanese sake brewery and brew if you don't speak the language pretty well because it's really, really a very, very busy work schedule. Everybody knows what to do, where to do it, how to do it, and there's not a whole lot of talk. Mm, so you have to go into the line smoothly. <laughs> you have to fit in smoothly. And I'm sure they're very open to having people come in. But if you don't know what you're doing, you're just going to get in the way. <laughs> and I think that's why some might be reticent to do it. But uh, uh, definitely, I do see more and more cooperation. The other side of the coin is there's about 10 microbreweries in the United States now. Oh. Which is really, to me, a very interesting movement. Wow. Where you have small breweries uh, making sake here in the United States now. And uh, they do have a ways to go to catch up to the flavor profiles that Japanese sake has. But you got to start somewhere. Right. And it's great to see that, that movement as well. Right. So it's all over the states? Yeah, all over. I mean, there's a couple in Washington. There's several in California. There's one in Maine. There's one in Boston. Mm. Uh, there is one in North Carolina and a couple more that I'm probably forgetting. One in Texas. Mm. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot more that are being planned that I don't know about. Wow. That's exciting. It is exciting. It really is. Right. So have you tasted all those sake? Uh, almost all of them, yeah. Wow. I try to do that with great regularity to see how they're going. Mm. So. Did you like any one of those? One or two, three? Yeah, a lot of them are quite good. Uh, but what's interesting is you see flaws sometimes 
that they have to learn how to, to fix. And you just know it's just experience. Mm. Uh, you can taste some wild stuff that you know is due to wild yeast, and sanitation will fix that. Uh, of course, in Japan, they've been doing it for thousands, of, well, hundreds mm. and hundreds of years, so they know how to prevent those kinds of things. Right. Um, and the people who are learning to do that. So you can see flaws sometimes, and you can say, great, you know that they'll be able to fix this because by having a sake with this flaw, they'll say, okay, now I know I need to do this differently, and then from then on it'll be better. Mm. Uh, so I, I try to follow the sake in the United States with great regularity to see how it is improving and to, wow. and to support them as much as I can. Mm. So maybe like in 10 years, that could be a very premium sake in this country too. Yeah, I don't even think it'll take 10 years to tell you the truth. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, it is, it is. All right. So I'll ask you later which, which label, or maybe with Jeff, is <laughs> the audience. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. And uh, so why do you think sake is becoming so popular globally? I think uh, it always had the potential to become popular because quite simply, it's an extremely enjoyable beverage. It tastes great. It smells great. It goes absolutely wonderfully with food. Mm. Uh, and I think people just didn't have access to it and people didn't understand it. Uh, and I think what has happened is that people learned a little bit about it. And a couple of people, people have realized how good it is, which led to more demand, which led to more education. Mm. And it just spiraled in a very good direction. Right. So the easiest way to answer the question is just to say, I think it's just sake's time. And it's always been this good. Mm. But finally, it's slowly working its way into the spotlight as it gets more attention. Right. Oh, the speaking of, uh, you know, the biggest wine competi- competition of the world called uh, w- IWC in London started uh, sake division in 2007. So mm-hmm. sake is more officially recognized as a premium drink. Yeah, that's a really wonderful movement, I think. In other words, what's really going to help sake's popularity is if wine professionals uh, start to really enjoy it. And that's definitely happening. Mm-hmm. I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of wine professionals would say, okay, I kind of have to learn this sake stuff too. And they were grudgingly learning about it. Whereas I think these days they're actually enjoyably bracing it, embracing it. Uh, and realizing how fun and interesting and enjoyable and tasty sake can be. Mm. And when wine professionals support sake like that, it's really going to grow fast. Mm. That makes sense because if you go to like fine restaurant, fine dining restaurant, you have a fluke sashimi, and then that would be really great with premium sake. And like John George or Luban and those places, not just those places, but uh, you know, many semi formal places serve uh, sake on the wine list. Yeah, you're starting to see it come out on wine list, aren't we? Right. It's great. And, uh, well, even, uh, you know, the premium glassware company, Rido, produced a sake glass. Right, right. Yeah. It's specifically a daiginjo glass. Mm. And it does a very, very good job of, of maximizing or, or uh, the aromas and flavors of, of uh, pristine daiginjo. It does a great job. Oh, wow. I have to try that. Yeah, you should. You should. It's great. It's significantly <laughs> different from other glasses. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about John's support for breweries that was hit by 2011 earthquake. So please stay with us. If I had a magic wand, tomorrow everyone in the world would have enough food to eat that was culturally appropriate and delicious. The planet would be thriving because all the food would have been grown and produced in a way that sustains us, both our bodies and our 
our world. But man, I do not have a magic wand. What I do have is you and this radio station, the Heritage Radio Network. That's what we're here to do. We're here to help lead the way to a future that's more delicious, that's more fun, where we're healthier, where the planet's healthier. And we want you to be a part of that. We can't do it without you. As a nonprofit radio station, we depend on the support of our listeners. So take a minute out of your day, visit the website, and click the big beating donate tab. Throw us a few bucks. Every bit helps. We're counting on you. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is John Gontner, who is a world-leading sake educator. So because this is a, a topic of sake, so maybe you can just go through the basic of sake. Sure. If I were to talk about the basics of sake in the simplest way to convey it, uh, it's an alcoholic beverage. It's brewed, and it's brewed from rice and rice alone. So it's closer to a beer than it is to a wine or a spirit. And the only fermentable material used to make sake is rice. The alcohol content is only about 16%, which is just a little bit stronger than a robust red wine. Mm. Uh, the sake that's out there that's premium is usually enjoyed slightly chilled, but there's a lot of stuff that it can be enjoyed warm as well. Uh, and to me, it's one of the most enjoyable beverages on the planet. Mm. <laughs> so if our listeners just want to go out tonight and then enjoy, do you have any tips? Sure. Admittedly, sake can be challenging to understand because there is a lot of terminology. But if you wanted to go out immediately and enjoy it and look as if you know exactly what you're talking about, I have three rules I like to suggest. Number one, drink something with the word ginjo on the bottle. If you're drinking something with the word ginjo on the label somewhere, you're drinking the top 13% of all sake produced. Mm. Uh, the second thing is drink it slightly chilled. Why is that? Because ginjo tends to have fruity aromas that are most enjoyed when slightly chilled. There's exceptions, but most of the time you're going to want to drink your ginjo slightly chilled. And third, make a decision on price. Because one of the most wonderful things about sake is that 90% of the time, it's fairly priced. Mm. So if one sake costs $20, another costs $40, almost everybody, almost all of the time, mm. is going to say the $40 right. sake is better. Versus wine. Versus, yeah, which <laughs> isn't necessarily the case. Right. So this is a ginjo. That's a G-I-N. J-O. J-O. Correct. Right. So go out, drink ginjo, drink it slightly chilled, and make a decision based on price, and you will enjoy your sake for sure. Mm. And the second time, maybe you can try, like, do my other, you know, sure. little different sure. things. Right? If you find that it appeals to you, you can start to look at other grades and mm -hmm. other things like that and uh, broaden your understanding of sake for sure. Right. Okay. And uh, you earned the title of Sake Samurai in 2006. So could you please explain what it is? Sure. So there is an organization, a trade organization of all the brewers in Japan, uh, the Japan Sake Brewers Association. And there's a junior council to that. In other words, a group of the younger sake brewery presidents. And uh, they began the Sake Samurai Award for both Japanese people and non-Japanese people who help promote sake. Uh, mm. and uh, enhance its understanding and appreciation around the world. Mm. So the very first year they offered this award, I was uh, uh, able to receive it. So I'm very grateful for that. Mm. I found only six people a year, five to six people a year. Yeah, something like that. Right. That's all. Yeah. Okay. 
And uh, who are other samurais? Do can you mention a couple other people? Sure. One is local Tim Sullivan, who runs a, a site and an activity filled uh, world called uh, Urban Sake. Mm-hmm. And Tim Sullivan is also a uh, a uh, sake samurai, as is uh, as are a couple people in town as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a guy named Bo Timken who has uh, the first sake only store. Uh, in the United States. There's one here in New York, too, Sakaya, which mm-hmm. is in East Village. Uh, but the first one was True Sakaya in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, uh, he, he is also a sake, sam- sake samurai. So is Chizuko Nikawa, who promotes mm-hmm. sake here locally in New York. Right. There's probably a couple more in New York that I'm not remembering. Mm-hmm. And uh, one with the guest, uh, guest uh, Rojo de Dagorn. Ah, master, that's right. He is. He is. Right. And uh, I, I found uh, David Wigley, who is a British master wine. So it's like, you know, so globally, sake is going beyond just the national. It definitely beverage. is, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. And uh, also, I heard you became a kizake meister and uh, earned another one, a master certificate from the National Research Institute of Japan, both in 2010. So, sounds like there are many certificates, like as, as much as wine. Uh, I guess those two are actually run by uh, the government. Uh, or a, a semi-governmental organization. Mm. Um, and uh, there's not many more than that, really. Okay. So there's not a whole lot of them. Mm. So they created a certification to keep the level of sake higher. Well, those two certifications are really for the industry. Uh, the first one, the sake tasting moisture, as they call it, is probably more geared towards people that sell it. Mm. You learn to identify various aromas, uh, acids, uh strengths of sake, uh, and things like that. And it's a very good course. The other one, the expert sake assessor certification, is extremely difficult. Mm. But that's for brewers. They try to teach you to be able to look at a sake, taste a sake, look at the fault, and know what in your process, what in your brewing process caused that fault. Mm. So you can taste your own sake and say, I see I need to do this to make it better. Uh, That was a really difficult course. But that's really geared for brewers mm. uh, more than anything else. Sounds very meaningful. Uh, it is, yeah. It's a very useful, very meaningful course. It's very intense, actually. Uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, I heard that, you know, you are part of the activities. When Japan was hit by the Tohoku earthquake in 2011, you know, you supported uh, many sake breweries in the region. So do you know what happened in the earthquake? Uh, yeah. As everybody knows, there was a big earthquake uh, on that day that led to a tsunami. Mm-hmm. And it was in the northeastern part of Japan, the Tohoku region. And there's a lot of sake breweries up there. Uh, and many of them were very hard hit by both the earthquake and the tsunami, mm. uh, especially in Iwate Prefecture and uh, Miyagi Prefecture, and of course, Fukushima Prefecture. Some were just rattled, and, and the kura would break down, and others were run over by the tsunami. Mm. On top of that, a lot of rice fields were damaged by the salt water. Furthermore, just distribution of goods, I mean, getting fuel, for example, or, or getting rice deliveries, or getting their product out of the region, mm. um, it was very challenging for a lot of them. Uh, I didn't do much. I did what I could, but I tried to get proper information flowing around about who was okay, who wasn't. Um, then after uh, all that settled down, uh, Japan really rose to support uh, the Tohoku region in general, uh, and that includes sake and their food. So they really started to drink a lot of tohoku sake mm. and eat a lot of tohoku food. And it took a while, but the tohoku region has really come back, and sake sales have returned to 
in most places wow. uh, to where they were before the uh, before the tragedy. Mm. I I still see you know after four years after the earthquake, you know like Tokyo department stores, you know food fair from Tohoku and uh, sake is always there too. So. Yeah, yeah, you do see that a lot. A lot right. of food fairs with a lot of sake being sold from the Tohoku region. It's still mm. being pushed, and that's great. Right. You know, even without. Bringing up what happened in 2011, the Tohoku region is really one of the leading regions、uh, in sake production in Japan these days.、Mm. Just a very high level of consistent quality. It's recognized as much for sure by、uh, by the sake industry and consumers as well in Japan.、Mm. So.、Uh Almost all of them recovered, or some were lost forever. A couple were lost forever, of course.、Mm. A couple were lost forever,、uh, and a couple more did their best to continue to survive, but just couldn't do it、uh, mm. after after all of that happened. Okay, right.、Um, well, the I heard I once、uh, the salt water goes into a rice field, like you said. It's it's very hard to put it back to the original condition. So yeah, that's going to take a while. For sure, and I'm sure that right now there's other priorities、mm-hmm. than making that land arable again.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll probably be、uh, fixed at some point in time, but I think it's not exactly a priority for the government and others right now.、Mm. Okay, all right. And、uh, I heard you have visited almost all sake breweries in Japan. So what did you see? <laughs> I've, I've not visited anywhere near all of the sake breweries in Japan. Okay.、Uh, there's 1,200 active. Have probably been to. I would bet between two hundred and two hundred and fifty easily.、Okay. <laughs> so I've still got you know seventy five percent of them or more to go.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But I got to admit that's the most interesting thing I do in all of my work. If you visit a brewery,、uh, you learn so much, and it really is true. Sakaya banu. I mean, everybody has their own way of doing it.、Mm-hmm. And every time I visit a brewery and you listen to、uh, the kuramoto, the brewery owner, or the toji explain things, there's always one thing. I'm like, are you serious? You do it that way? Something I never heard of before. <laughs> Uh, and that's what really keeps it fascinating and interesting.、Mm-hmm. Do you see a、um, uh, regional diversity in making, you know, climate, water? Oh,、know? absolutely.、Uh, I could talk about this for about forty-five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay.、Uh, but there is regionality. There is regional diversity in the sake world. It's not nearly as clearly expressed or delineated as it might be in the wine world,、mm-hmm. but it's definitely there.、Uh, things like、uh, climate, for example, like in the northern colder regions, you're going to ferment and then store at colder temperatures. Than you will out west. That has a lot to do with it. The guild of master brewer, the Toji Guild, will also affect that.、Uh, the rice that's most readily available will affect that.、Um, although water isn't consistent across large regions,、uh, very often、uh, the water of the region will affect that as well. Traditional cuisine will affect、mm. uh, the regionality of sake. So there's many things that contribute to that as well.、Mm. There's also a lot of things that detract from it. So in other words, you can actually ship rice all over the country. So you're not. Restricted to using local rice,、mm. um, people's culinary habits have changed. They're not eating traditional food as much anymore.、Mm. Uh, the distribution system. All of a sudden, a brewery's market is not just the local people, but the entire country of Japan, and sometimes New York and London and places overseas as well. So the style of sake very often they have to adjust it、mm. to appeal to a wider, a wider audience. So while there are a lot of things that contribute to regionality, there's many things that take away from it as well. But it's an extremely interesting study,、mm. I think, to, to pay attention to the region from which a sake comes,、right. uh, and associate that with your feelings about that, your thoughts about it. It's、mm. very, very interesting. Right,、uh, and at the same time, I heard、uh, the National Research Institute. I think、um, they give、uh, the best koji of that time, like nationwide. So there is an initiative that you can get the best one, just、uh, found. It's like a clones of wine, and. 
you know, it's available. It's not a exclusively owned by somebody. What is the Koji? The Koji yeah, mold Koji. itself? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, you are correct. Uh, so there is, there aren't any brewers that have a Koji mold that's unique to them that they don't share with anybody else. There might be. Mm-hmm. But a better way to word that is there's four or five producers of Koji mold in Japan, and it's open to everybody. Mm-hmm. Anybody can buy anything that they make. Right. It's but, kind of a collaborative culture in a way. Oh, definitely it is. Right. Uh, definitely. You can't brew sake alone, and everybody wants everybody's sake to get better so that the entire industry grows. So while there is a lot of competition in the sake world, there's also a lot of co- cooperation. Mm, that's very nice. Yeah, it is great. Right. <laughs> okay. And so is it possible for listeners to visit sake breweries? Is it open to the public? Most breweries are open to visitors. At the same time, most breweries are not set up for any visitor any time. For mm-hmm. example, it's not like Napa Valley where you could just walk in and visit. There's a couple like that, but not very many. Uh, but most breweries are open to visits. Uh, I would also add, though, that being able to speak Japanese or be with someone who does really helps quite a bit. Right. Because <laughs> uh, most breweries aren't set up with someone to translate into various languages and lead people around. Mm-hmm. A couple are. Uh, so if you can get there and get to a brewery and either speak the language yourself or be with someone who does, uh, you can visit breweries pretty easily. Right now, there is something called a sakagura tourism. In other words, the government of Japan is actually trying to promote mm. visiting sake breweries and shoshu distilleries uh, as part of uh, an initiative to, of course, improve the image of sake, but also to improve tourism overall in Japan. Mm. So even within Japan, they're thinking more and more of how to make this more accessible to people. Mm. It's so like ugly tourism. Sake version, agritourism. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It is. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, sake industry people, they're known for being very traditional because they're generations and generations of people and they do it, they're craftsmen. That's right, that's right. right. Yeah, it's a very old traditional world uh, and it's maintaining tradition while modernizing a bit. Mm. Right. And it sounds like, uh, you know, like we talked earlier, because they're moving to marketing and exporting outside Japan. So they're... Yeah, they've got to consider how to do things that they've never done before. Mm. And they're embracing it quite well, I think. Right. Yeah, one time I visited uh, Hiroshima Sake Brewery and uh, he said, I would never think of making a sparkling sake. But here you are. Because yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's demanded and he thought, he decided because it's, it's needed, it's a good interest entrance to the real sake. You do see a lot of adap- adaptation in that way. Uh, but to me, what's, what's also really good and positive about that is that uh, he might make his sparkling sake, but he'll still continue to make the traditional right. products as well. Mm-hmm. So he's got one foot in the traditional world and one foot in the modern world as well. And that's a good way to proceed, I think. Right. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, you know, California world, dragon, you know, rolls, all those things started to attract people's interest. And now they grow up and then they're eating the real sushi. Yeah. So it's the same idea. That is a good idea. It's a good parallel, yeah. Right. Okay. And you have published uh, six books? On sake in Japanese and English. So, for our listeners, which one would you recommend to learn the basics of sake and for more advanced knowledge? Well, I think that there are a lot of sources for basics, uh, basic information about sake in the inter- internet and all other places. So, I guess the favorite of my own books is called Sake Confidential, okay. which goes a little bit deeper into the topics. I mean, the basics are covered very briefly, and then I go into the de- details of a lot of things that people ask about. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit deeper below the surface than a norm, uh, another book or my other books would go into. So the basics are easy to pick up. Mm-hmm. And this one kind of takes them beyond the basics. And that's actually my favorite right. of my well, books. Well, for instance, what's confidential? Well, that's a good question. 
my wife actually thought of the topic, uh, the title as we were driving along, but <laughs> there's just stories and anecdotes and things that most people might not normally be able to hear about the sake world. Mm. Uh, for example, what affects sake pricing, for example, mm. uh, or how rice is distributed, for example, mm. uh, or the truth about whether or not you should always drink the most expensive sake when in fact actually sometimes a cheaper sake is much more enjoyable or what you need. Mm. Or I think a lot of people are attracted to unpasteurized sake, namazake, uh, and think it's more special and rare. Same with aged sake, when the truth really isn't like that. And those are kinds of the topics I cover in that book. Mm, I think I have to get that. <laughs> do you <laughs> have a Kindle do. version? Uh, it does exist, yes. There is a okay. Kindle version of Sake Confidential as well. Okay. After the show, I'm going to get one. All right. Thanks. <laughs> right. And uh, also, you, you are the co-founder of the content editor, the world's first only, Sake Only magazine, Sake yeah. Today, yeah. which was founded in January of 2014. Right, right. What is it? It's a great project. I really, really enjoy it. So Sake Today is the first and only English language magazine focused on sake only, nihonsho only. Mm. And uh, there's a gentleman, his name is Rai Bevel. He already publishes a magazine on craft beer in Japan. Mm. Uh, and interestingly, I was looking for him because I wanted to find, team up with him to publish this magazine. And through learning about Japanese beer, he got into Japanese sake. So he was looking for me. <laughs> so somebody introduced this. And two years ago, we just published issue number seven. Okay. of Sake Today, and we started publishing it. And it's getting better every time. It gets more interesting every time. We're able to access more writers, uh, breweries, and things like that. And we're getting more and more support from the industry as we go forward, too. Mm. It's really a fun project. Okay, so do the audience tend to be American people? Yeah, or? I guess 80% of the subscribers are here in the United States, mm. and 20% are either in Japan or other countries. Okay, that's great. And uh, now, you're based in the U.S. now, or... You back and forth? I'm back and forth. So interestingly, I think the math of this is very interesting. I, I went to Japan in 1988 at the age of 26. At the age of 52, exactly one half of my life later, mm. I came back to put our children into schools here in the United States, and now I'm half and half. Okay. <laughs> so half here, half there, and now half and half. Mm. And then you teach in both countries? I do. I do the courses in both countries. The first few years, I just did that professional course in Japan, mm. but there was enough of a call for me to do it in the United States that I started doing it here as well, and so now I've done it more times in the United States than I have in Japan. Okay, so your courses tend to be just uh, like the New York one last week, uh, every couple months or every half year? Or? Every few months. Okay. So I usually do three in the U.S. and then one in Japan, and then I've got an advanced version that I do in Japan as well. So I'll do the whole thing five times a year. Okay, great. And uh, is it hard to sign up, a competitive, like restaurant reservation? You know what? It's just about the right level. Mm -hmm. In other words, in other words, I usually don't have to turn people away, and mm -hmm. I'm usually just about full. Okay. It's a miracle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And anyone can sign up. Yeah, of course. It's open to anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, Great. And uh, what's your next plan, future plan? You know, I really enjoy doing what I'm doing now, teaching and writing and things like that. Uh, I enjoy being deeply involved with the industry in Japan. It's just fascinating. Mm. So I definitely plan to continue uh, doing what I'm doing and stay as involved as I am now with the industry in Japan. Uh, but interestingly, again, throughout this career, if you can call it that, uh, the next thing to do is always present it itself. 
Uh, so whatever I'm going to do next will appear at the right time. I'm very sure of that. Mm, because you keep doing what you like, so <laughs> people so. notice. Yeah, I guess so. But something will pop up next. And I can continue mm. to do what I'm doing now enjoyably mm. uh, until I retire, if I ever retire. And uh, <laughs> if something else needs to be done, it'll present itself in time. Mm, I'm pretty sure of that. That's a great message. You have a very universal. Right? <laughs> you keep doing it, and then people recognize it. Uh, wow. Yeah, that is important to continue, whatever you're doing. Just keep it up. You know mm. what I mean? Just just to continue to do things and uh, I think that uh, that leads to the next step mm, great alright so thank you for joining us today John thank you very much Akiko it's my pleasure to be here very <laughs> much so please come back I'll be happy to do that trip. be happy to do that right. and uh, so listeners if you're interested in John's sake programs please visit sake-world.com and if you have any questions or comments about the show please contact us at heritageradionetwork.org and by the way we just launched a beautiful new website so please visit our page Japan Eats is live at 3pm on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org iTunes and Stitcher podcasts and today's show was made possible by Santori and our engineer is Liz Smith thank you for listening and I'll see you next week Listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 